What are you a fan of? For several weeks each year, I'm a committed Love Island viewer. Sometimes I'll watch a film that stays with me for weeks afterwards. Occasionally, I'll count down the days until a new series starts. Search for a TV show, game, film, or series of films on Tumblr, and you'll find out quite quickly that you're not as big a fan as you thought. Fandoms are communities of fans who are unbelievably enthusiastic. They make art featuring their favourite characters, they've rewatched something so many times, they know every detail and every piece of trivia. Their watching, reading, or playing might have started as pure enjoyment, but now they're obsessed. This goes beyond TV and film. Uh, there are video game fandoms, fandoms dedicated to individual actors and singers, YouTube vloggers. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that One Direction have a pretty active fandom. This episode is all about those people and their online lives, what they draw and write and why they make it. We're also going to touch on toxic fandoms and all the Star Wars drama that we've seen lately. First, I went to Tumblr. If you're not on it, Tumblr is quite difficult to describe. I've had a Tumblr account since 2010. Uh, how old was I in 2010? Maths. Helen, just subtract eight, for God's sake. I was 15... 17. I was 17. Yes. Oh my God. Idiot. <laughs> my maths ability is shite. <laughs> Tumblr isn't aspirational like Instagram, but there are artistic, aesthetically pleasing images on there. It's not predominantly text-based like Twitter, but it has a similar sense of millennial humour, depending on who you follow. It's also known for being quite left-wing, accepting of all sexualities and genders, and quite politically right-on. So basically, if you're trans or queer or struggling with identity in some way, Tumblr is generally a place where you can be yourself and people will be cool with it. It's also a place where people share their fan art, dedications to their favourite characters, and sometimes very explicit fan fiction. Could you start by explaining uh, which fandoms you're in? Mostly Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Sherlock, and After Infinity War, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Actually, there are lots of fandoms. Avatar The Last Airbender fandom, One Direction. I'm now currently in Supernatural fandom and Sherlock and Merlin. Uh, my main, main fandom is Supernatural. I started watching like six, five years ago. Um, I'm just really into Supernatural. So in order, you just heard from Adigni, who's from Singapore, Bina from Iran, Anna Julia from Brazil, and Victoria from the US. I got to know them all a little bit and really enjoyed talking to them about their various fandoms, because enthusiastic people are very infectious, in a good way, not in a TB way. It was a happy accident that they're all so beautifully spread around the world. Let's hear a bit more from Adigni from Singapore. She creates Sherlock themed, well, mainly Benedict Cumberbatch themed fan art on Tumblr. I, I find the character really intriguing and um, relatable in a way. That aspect is what was kind of addictive to me. I am quite a Sherlock fan myself, actually. Um, not as much as you, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> but um, I do really like it. And I think 
his character because I read the the Sherlock Holmes books as well. Yeah, there's some certain kind of genius, but also in a childish way, and yet he he pretends to be emotionless or like cold hard machine, but actually he cares a lot, and then it's what makes him extra charming. I've always loved creating art. Sherlock came along, and I'm like, Ooh, it actually makes me feel. Like, I want to draw it. It's a joy drawing it because I am also interested in the subject matter and receiving the feedback is also rewarding. On Tumblr, do you get people commenting and liking and sharing your art a lot? Yeah, yeah. Because on Tumblr, you can reblog and share it. Whereas on other websites, you just people just kind of, okay, if they happen to see it, then they see it, then they comment on it. But it's not share. It's not a continuous cycle of sharing, you know? Can you tell me about the times that you've... I think you said you've met Benedict Cumberbatch before. Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> can, you, can you tell me about that? <laughs> I'd love to know. I met him though, I, I met him several times when, I went, when he was performing in Hamlet. So I went to London. I stayed there for two months. <laughs> what? And I, that was my first time in London, but I did not explore London at all. All I did was explore Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> I went to see that as well. I only went once um, and I remember yeah. walking towards the theatre and this massive crowd by a barrier by the stage door. Those people in the stage door that you saw, yeah, I'm probably there. The first time that I met him, I had a, a an art of mine that I printed out and I had him sign it and I was one of the first few and he his pen was out of ink so he borrowed my pen, you know, he continued signing and I was just there holding the cap and I thought, because I thought he was going to return it to me immediately, you know, and then he just went off with my pen and I'm like, oh, okay, there goes my pen, I guess, you know. After he finished signing everyone, he sort of remembered that he borrowed the pen from me. He waved the pen to me and like, oh, uh, I think this is your pen. Is this your pen? And I was just kind of there like starstruck and I was just staring at him like with my mouth open and not saying anything as if he's speaking an alien language. Mm. And he's just there waving his pen and he's like, is this your pen? I think this is your pen. And I'm like, uh? <laughs> I'd be the same. Next, I spoke to Bina from Iran. She loves Sherlock and Supernatural. I've always been into books I read or shows I watched, like I really generally cared about the characters or about the story. So I've always been kind of emotional about them. When I discovered the blogs and the internet, that was the point when I started to become a like an official fangirl. When you go into the internet and you see all those people talking about it, everyone else is passionate about what you're passionate about. So you start talking about it and you become really invested in it. It's good to feel like you're part of a community. Mm. And it's not just that. It just really piques your creativity. Like when you're in the fandom, you have something to write about. So it just helps you become a better writer. Do you ever feel like the rest of the world maybe is sort of missing out a bit by not being in this fandom? I really do. Real life can be boring sometimes and really stressing, but when you're in a fandom, it's like you're always watching a movie. You know when you're watching a movie and for a few hours, the real world kind of fades and you kind of care about these characters and you're in a like happy atmosphere we've all liked love stories you know sometimes you just need to feel maybe because you're bored 
I also spoke to Victoria from New Jersey. She loves Supernatural too. A lot of Tumblr users are into Supernatural. It's also a rare example of a TV show which has been on the air for over a decade. It started in 2005. So the fans have a lot of material to work with when it comes to creating art and writing fanfics. Fanfiction is written for lots of different reasons. Some people want to live vicariously through their favourite characters. Some want to expand on their favourite universe and contribute to their fandom. People sometimes add new characters. They sometimes add a version of themselves. They sometimes write the fanfic so you, the reader, can place yourself in it. Some write something called slashfic, which involves pairing a same-sex couple together. Usually, one which would never make the whiteboard in the writer's room. Think Harry and Voldemort, or John Watson and Sherlock. Victoria writes a lot of fanfiction, all about supernatural. I've been watching since season one, so uh, I was about ten years old when I started. I fell in love with the show, and, and it was just so unique. I was uh, diagnosed uh, with an uh, unknown autoimmune disease. It basically caused me to go into anaphylactic shock constantly. Oh God, that's awful. Yeah, basically my own immune system was attacking my skin. I was hospitalized about seven or eight times. One of the things that really brought me comfort was writing. I would kind of lean on Supernatural and Sam and Dean because uh, those guys were like, you know, they could be at death's door and still be like, I'm going to fight until the end. I wanted to be able to have something to hold on to and something that, you know, I can look at and say, well, guess what? If they did it, I can do it too. It was a little bit of escapism and not only that, but um, when I started on Tumblr, I started noticing people that, you know, would come up with these fantastic ideas that would fit perfectly in the supernatural world. I also wanted to, you know, kind of tinker with the world a bit as well. One of my favorite studies of fan fiction from somebody called Sheena Pugh, and she says that fans want more of what they love, but also more from those worlds. Bronwyn Thomas is a professor of English and New Media at the University of Bournemouth. She specialises in digital storytelling and online forms of reading, including fan fiction. Yeah, it's a kind of addictive thing that they want to read more about these characters and these worlds. But also there are gaps there. And sometimes, you know, a sense of dissatisfaction maybe with the way in which this particular writer has constructed the world, that they might like to play around with that world and see things done a little bit differently. You love this world and you you want to keep coming back to it, but also you want to keep exploring it in new ways. The reason why lots of people are interested in fan fiction is because gay characters or trans characters or characters, you know, come from marginalised ethnic background or whatever, who may be, you know, a minor character in a TV show or a book, writers can, you know, turn them into the main event. A lot of fan fiction, particularly when you get into talking about Slash, is about uh, challenging those kind of gender binaries and ideas about, you know, male and female, and it's often very subversive and transgressive. Some people celebrate fan, fan fiction as a diversification. Fan fiction is kind of a work in progress. They publish chapters and then they publish more chapters and they get feedback along the way. If you've been doing it for a while, you can sort of advertise yourself as a beta reader and then you will help new writers to kind of learn the ropes. You kind of act like their editor, so you correct their grammar and punctuation and things like that. 
but also you help them to kind of understand how they can shape their stories and get more more of a readership. People will give their time freely. When I started writing for Tumblr, I was on it basically nonstop. I was writing constantly, getting feedback, and the whole point was, you know, for me to make things that people enjoy and make things that are true to the to the series. For every piece of writing, I write maybe eight to ten hours on just the first draft, and then editing takes about three to four hours, and then posting it takes about an hour because you need to work with the gifs, the tags. You got to make sure that it's everything's in order before you post it. Everybody has their process, and some of them are unconventional. Like with me, whenever I go to write a story, especially a fan fiction. I go forward with it as if it was a television show. I actually act it out before I write it down because I want to make sure that it's fluid and I want to make sure that you can put yourself in that situation. While other writers work strictly off of outlines, you know, they're like, this is going to happen, then this, then this, and then we're going to go to chapter two, then A, B, C, D is going to happen. There are some other people that just sit down and write and it goes where it goes. Technically, we aren't published, but we are sharing our work with the world. I find all of these people more than amazing writers because some of the stuff that they come up with is absolutely amazing. I think they are published. Published doesn't mean you have to have a book deal. Not on the internet. You can publish things yourself and it have just as much meaning. I mean, that's my entire career so far in a nutshell. Tumblr, Wattpad and fanfiction.net are massive communities of readers. There are 122,000 supernatural stories on fanfiction.net. Some are just over a thousand words, but I found one that was over 270,000 words long. For comparison, that's slightly longer than Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which I'm sure you're aware is the chunkiest of the Harry Potter books, proper paperweight material. Fanfiction stories are catalogued in incredible detail, more detail than any Waterstones or Borders. R.I.P. Borders, you were such a good bookshop. Fanfics are categorised according to levels of violence and sexual content, so you can search by certificate. You can search for specific characters and character pairings. If there's a lesser character who doesn't get much screen time in the show or film, you can guarantee there are fanfiction writers who've fleshed them out and given them a backstory. There are subgenres like angst, crime, sci-fi, friendship, and even western. Chapters begin with carefully chosen song lyrics. There's subtext, motifs and themes running throughout drama and suspense. Sometimes there'll be a sudden sex scene, but other writers will drag a pairing out and let it simmer. If the characters are American and the writer British, they'll do research to make sure they've got the details right. It's very clever stuff. These are published stories because thousands of readers favourite, follow and share them. This episode has been very lovely so far. When are we getting to the dark side? Well, now is probably a good time. Sherlock is a very big fandom, as you've heard. It's also notorious for being one of the most devoted and, at times and on certain topics, aggressive. Now, it sounds like I'm picking Sherlock fans out as a bad bunch. Uh, not true. There's a lot of conflict in fandoms and we're going to hear more about that later. For now though, I want to go back to our Tumblr Sherlock fan Adigny because she told me about a small group 
of John Locke's shippers, that's people who want to see John and Sherlock get it on, who let power go to their collective head. Okay, I have to make a disclaimer. This is not true to all John Locke shippers, because there's plenty of them who are like me, or just, you know, we enjoy it because it's fun, because we like to see their chemistry, because etc, etc. But then there's also a handful of them, and unfortunately they are the ones who are much louder, who are much more aggressive. This much I can say because it's in the past and at least by now almost all of them admitted that this was like the worst aspect. There was a sort of witch hunt, I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, maybe so not, no. To them it matters a lot that who's on top and who's at the bottom. When people disagree and say it's the other way around, they're like, wow, this person is a, a you know, a rape apologist. Oh, they they support pedophilia, and then they. Then really? I remember once where they had a a post with a list of Tumblr users and like saying, "Oh, these are the people who are you know rape apologists and pedophilia and like you know you know because they judge people based on something as petty as like what genre of fic you're reading or what you know." position the ship is supposed to be in it created quite a lot of tension do you think there's ever a bit of competition on tumblr between people in terms of who's the more devoted fan yeah i it's it's a it's a tricky situation with that um because you know there's the fandom where like everybody's family no judgment zone everybody come here you know show us your work very supportive very loving part of the fandom and then there's another part of the fandom um, that wants to turn it into a competition they'll, they'll go on to your work and say oh i didn't think that was cool that you said that dean would have never done that or you know what do you, what is wrong with you you know you shouldn't have put him in this situation Luckily, I haven't encountered that side before, but I know of many fan fiction writers who have. Many of them have considered shutting down their blog more than once. By the way, if you want to hear more about John Locke and the controversy surrounding it, there's a really good podcast called Decoder Ring. They do gibberish. They did a whole episode about it, which goes into far more detail. Just search John Locke, you'll find it. For non-Apple listeners, there's a link to it elsewhere in the episode sources. Just whatever you do, don't abandon ship and go and listen to it. Abandon ship! Oh my god. Right, see? How could you possibly stop listening to this and go and listen to something else when I make puns? Like, abandon ship? Oh my god. Don't abandon this podcast and go and listen to the other one. That would be insane. Listen at the end. It's not unusual to see an article reporting that a group of fans are behaving badly these days. It seems like diversity is one of the main sensitivities, particularly in fandoms. Some people want more of it, others push against that. The film, book or TV show is always playing catch up with the former group, but moving too quickly in the wrong direction for the latter. So we've got groups of fans who really don't like the idea of a black stormtrooper and a female character being the most pivotal, but their favourite film franchise is doing it anyway. And then we've got fans who think their favourite series is too slow, they want more LGBTQ characters and they're only being teased by the possibility, or it stays as subtext. 
One group of fans constantly in the media at the moment is Star Wars. Since the newer Star Wars films were released, the media narrative has been very liberal, open-minded left versus whining, racist, misogynistic fanboys. It's a very convenient binary to go along with if you're left-wing and a feminist like me. And I have, because that's what I've been reading. However, every single fan studies expert I spoke to told me it's not actually that simple. Namely, Billy Proctor from the University of Bournemouth. Rather than listen to what the mainstream media says and follow it blindly, we have to examine if these things are true. So how many fans are we talking about? Are there fans? How do we know these things? And I've seen a couple of news reports this morning, and one from The Guardian, which talks about a Facebook group taking responsibility for the Kelly Marie Tran Instagram fiasco. February this year, I wrote an essay about what happened with The Last Jedi. The, the majority of people who were complaining about The Last Jedi weren't racist or sexist, but the, but the mainstream media took that and ran with it. And this guy who's now taking credit for this, I actually debunked in February as I'm taking credit for tanking the Rotten Tomatoes scores. He's one person on Facebook. He's an anonymous guy. He's a notorious troller. Now that a newspaper like The Guardian has taken that up and ran with it, that's really worrying. But especially worrying considering that um, Kelly Tran hasn't confirmed or denied why she left Instagram. The domino effect that we're seeing across mainstream media reports at the moment comes from one unsubstantiated tweet from a fan account. So we don't even know at this moment why Kelly Tran left. Now, I'm not going to say that she wasn't abused. She was. There was a Wikipedia page that they were changing certain things on there and editing it. But the first thing that I would need to ask as an academic is, okay, how many people are there and how do we know if these are fans? Since the emergence of the, of the, of the well, what people are calling the, the so-called all-right, they kind of mobilise around anything that has a, a whiff of progressive values or politics. So they have boycotted Doritos, they have boycotted Stephen King because Stephen King is being very vocal against the president in his tweets. So they've boycotted Stephen King's It. Well, okay, they've boycotted Stephen King's It. Stephen King's It becomes the most successful horror movie in history. So these boycotts don't really have that much of an effect. Many boycott campaigns that are around Rogue One, when I researched that, turned out to be the work of three people in a basement. You know, the old adage, don't feed the trolls. Well, I would say journalists are feeding them a banquet. If you're a troll, Helen, and you want to get noticed, and then it gets picked up in the mainstream media, and then there's a domino effect across all these sites, trolling job done, I would say. In my research, overwhelmingly, the majority of Star Wars fans are quite happy with the diversity. The people who go online and who complain about gender and race are a very, very tiny minority. Journalists don't want nuance. They'll go into a a hashtag, and they'll do what we call cherry-picking. They'll cherry-pick the tweets that prove their story, but they'll ignore anything that complicates it. It's just so easy for someone to go into Twitter, take a tweet, put it in a news story. I really worry about the ethics of that. Fandoms take shape around surplus audiences. So the target audience for a particular media property gets what it wants directly from the property itself. They may speculate around the edges, they may do what fans call meta, which is critical commentary, but male fans mostly are involved in what people call affirmational relationships. They build models of ships, they speculate on how it's going to change when we change doctors, that sort of thing. I didn't know this when I interviewed him, but Henry Jenkins is a the guy when it comes to fan studies. He's been doing this shit for years. He's the Provost Professor of Communication, Journalism, Cinematic Arts and Education at the University of Southern California. 
He's also written many books and has seen the arena of fan studies change dramatically with the rise of the internet. Female fans have to work harder, right? They're a surplus audience and that they, the producers of these shows may be happy to have those viewers, but they're not targeting them in their media development. So there, women have to fill in the gaps. They have to speculate about the characters and their relationships and mostly are interested in things that are taking place off screen. So fandom's shaped by this mixture of fascination and frustration. If there wasn't fascination, they would find something else to watch. If there wasn't frustration, they wouldn't work as hard to make the pieces fit. So you would find female fans of Sherlock really frustrated with Moffat for teasing them on the relationship between Sherlock and John Watson. You will find male fans of Doctor Who incredibly pissed with Stephen Moffat for half a dozen sins he's committed in his run on the Doctor. But here we see debates within fandom that get flattened out and represented within the news media as if fans were all collectively angry at the producers of this text. Now that matters because the producers are going to make decisions about how far to move toward inclusion and diversity in Star Wars, in part based on their perception of the fan community's response. The news media overcoverage of negative responses is going to result in them reining in or slowing down the inclusion of women and people of color in Star Wars. Whereas the reality is when I look at the female-centered fan community in particular, there's an enormous eagerness for more diversity, more inclusion in those films. I think it matters where we look as we try to understand something like Star Wars fans' response to those films. On to the next academic. There are so many PhDs in this episode, it's untrue. And when I say PhD, I mean it in the traditional sense, not in the penile sense. Carolyn Reinhard is an assistant professor in communication arts and sciences at Dominican University in Illinois. Her latest book, Fractured Fandoms, is about contentious communication and conflict within fan communities. One of the great things about any fandom that you have is the ability to find yourself and to find other people. And in finding yourself, you find out, say, what your strengths are, what you're capable of doing. I mean, if you look at even a lot of the people we consider successful movie makers today, a lot of them really started off making fan work. So it's not that different from teenage girls who spend time doing fan art or writing fan fiction or doing all these different types of role-playing things. It's all a matter of, of finding who you are, finding what you like, expressing what you like and then definitely through all that connecting with other people and finding other people and that can be really really important for young people for and well for anyone going forward but definitely for young people as they're trying to figure out their place in the world so there's huge amounts of positives that come attached to fandom and being a part of the fan community I think it becomes more complicated when you start bringing in different social identities there's this idea that you could have maybe just the pure fan identity that is removed from all these other identities a person would have. And that's the only identity then that matters in that fan community. Huh, I'll go with Star Wars because that's the one I know the most. Think about the Star Wars fandom. You could, you could think about how in a fan community all it would matter is that you are a Star Wars fan. You could see a hierarchy being built between the Star Wars fan at the top who knows the most, who knows every single bit of trivia, who buys all of the different ancillary goods that Lucasfilm, now Disney, puts out, who, you know, is putting a lot of their money 
and emotional investment into it, and thus they have a lot of social and cultural capital. So they're sitting at the top of that fan community. And then you slowly go down from there, and you have different gradations of people under that until you get to maybe the very casual Star Wars fan who just comes in and out based on maybe the latest movie. But I think that is definitely the most simplistic way of thinking about it, because what we're seeing now is that when you bring in the intersection of all these different social identities, especially race and gender identities, then you start getting these ideas of what is a true fan, not just being based on that person who knows all the trivia and who know who buys all the goods, but now it's also, well, it's a white boy. It's the white male who is the true fan because it tends to be the fanboy who focuses more on accumulating the goods, which includes trivia, versus the fangirl who maybe is more interested in the production of things, the transformative type fandom. At that point, it's not just lining up in a hierarchy, it's doing what academics have determined is the policing of the boundaries. So you're preventing people from even being a part of your community. You're using your power to shun people. And then even if they are part of your community, and this is research that has gone back to the 1990s, you'll find people who will use their power to shut down conversation. So certain things can't be talked about. You let in the people who don't fit your idea of what a true fan is. But then you say, okay, well, you can't talk about the, the gendered issues in relationship to Star Wars. We're only going to talk about, you know, was Darth Vader good all along or something very related to canon or very trivial. We've often seen fans complain about new films that are kind of not in the same timeline as the films that they love. Well, a lot of the times it comes across, you've ruined my childhood. So Ghostbusters being an example, the 1984 Ghostbusters is so treasured and so loved by, by first-generation fans. Any attempt to reboot it would be seen as an affront, as something that symbolically attacks that film. And that's a massive part of fan identity, is this idea that they protect their nostalgia and their memories of being a child. And that's the kind of self-narrative that they tell. I guess the original Star Wars trilogy for me is something that meant quite a lot to me when I was growing up. So that now with the new films coming out, although I'm an academic, I can kind of think and say, well, that isn't spoiling the enjoyment of Star Wars. But at the same time, I can feel myself getting right quite angry in irrational ways. After I saw The Last Jedi, I kind of had a meltdown. I wanted to see Luke Skywalker come back and kick some ass. I didn't want Luke Skywalker to die in the way that he did. What, what my vision for the new trilogy was to have Han, Leia, Chewbacca and Luke together for one last time. And that never happened. I got in many arguments on social media with people. I was very passionate about how wrong this film was. I had to withdraw from social media because I didn't trust myself. There are many different reasons people are fans and there are many different ways to behave and practice being a fan. So this idea of kind of a homogenous fan base is a, is, is a complete myth. Fans debate, argue and quarrel over different things that might not include sexism or racism. I mean, a lot of stuff that I read around The Last Jedi was about the character of Luke, was about the narrative, was about sending Rose and Finn, um, a black and an Asian actor, off on a subplot that eventually leads to nothing. That must be really difficult for a journalist to get the head around. I think one of the reasons why things can go so south so fast and so hard is because of how emotionally attached you get to things and then how much you can see that thing relating to your sense of self and how important it becomes to you. So that whole idea of the defensive fan, that's definitely there. And I know I've done it throughout most of my life. 
um, my partner, when we first started dating, he really hated the Star Wars prequels. And I was like, no, 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 they're great. I love the Star Wars prequels because of how important Star Wars was for me. I have a huge Star Wars tattoo on my shoulder right now. Star Wars helped me define who I was. I think part of it is learning how to deal with it. And that's, you know, supposed to be what maturity is supposed to bring. Because as you grow older, you deal with more people, you deal with more things, you have to take on other responsibilities. Other things are supposed to become more important to you. And if those things don't happen, you can kind of get stuck. And fandom is important. Fandom should always be something you love. But it shouldn't be something you love so much that it causes you to attack someone else just because they, say, are disagreeing with you in terms of what Sherlock characters are having sex with one another in your fandom. Well, yeah, I've been writing about fandom now for more than 30 years. So when I was start, starting in fandom in the 60s and 70s, we had so-called letter zines where everyone wrote their central location, our reactions to an episode. And a month later, or two months later, we might get a magazine in the mail that had all of our reactions to that episode. You compare that to just-in-time fandom, as Matt Hills calls it, people turn on to a show tonight before the first commercial break is out, the reactions on Twitter, discussion boards, and so forth will come bubbling forth. So the kinds of conversations, the sophistications of conversations that emerge when you have this rapid fire back and forth across the country, across the planet, around a television show, are similar to, but deeper than, what was possible when you had to wait two months to get other people's responses in the mail. Henry's podcast is called How Do You Like It So Far?, you can find it on Apple Podcasts and at henryjenkins.org. So all these very annoyed, very angry Star Wars fans, wouldn't it be good to talk to one? Well, Jesse Milestone is a YouTuber and stand-up comedian and actor who adores Star Wars. When Han Solo was killed off in The Force Awakens, she held a YouTube-based funeral service for him. She films impassioned 40 to 50 minute reviews of every new film, even her cat is called Han Solo, and her most popular video is called Star Wars Before Feminism. Here's a clip of it. Again, so there are women watching this movie, or there are people watching this movie, you know, looking for role models in the female characters. There are also people watching this movie looking for role models in the male characters, and you've given them nobody. Part of making the change, part of creating good feminism, and teaching men how to be better people and respect women better, is giving them positive male role models. You gave them an arrogant prick uh, and a purposeless janitor. I mean, you gave them nobody. Why do you think that Star Wars is such a passionate fandom? Is it because it's part of people's childhoods? I think that's a big one. Most people who saw Star Wars, most people who are into the fandom, saw it at a very, very young age. And it just becomes a part of your narrative and a part of your childhood. But unlike a Disney film that you kind of grow out of, Star Wars was always very universal. The original trilogy is this universal struggle of good and evil. That becomes their blueprint for the world. Bad people are Sith, good people are Jedi, and you have Mavericks like uh, Han Solo who can live somewhere in between and still be good people. You have this one specific group of people, the group that's currently under the domain of the left, if you will, even though I don't believe that. Well, unfortunately, what I think the left is or should be doesn't matter anymore because what it's come to stand for is a group that believes in identity politics, that believes that identity politics are the way forwards and that everything in order to be good or valid or diverse or whatever has to have these identity politics. 
Now, of course, there are. Yes, there are some people who reject identity politics because they just don't like other. They don't like anything that's different from them. That, that, that group exists. It's small relative to the people who say, look, I don't need to be told I'm supposed to like this thing. I'm supposed to like that thing. I'm supposed to accept this thing. I'm a human being. I just do. It's absurd, this idea that I should hate somebody based on their race or their ethnicity or and whatever. And it's just as absurd that I should be told that the only good thing is something that has a representation of that. It's not just that it's only good because these things, because it has these things, but it's bad if it doesn't because white is now inherently evil, because male is now inherently evil. You know, growing up, I all my heroes were men, Han Solo, Indiana Jones, James Bond, I idolized male characters. That's who I wanted to be. And then, of course, I hit puberty, and I thought they were all attractive. <laughs> so <laughs> people sit there and say, oh, my God, well, you're sexist, or you hate women, or you don't watch strong women in power. What strong, show me a strong woman from that movie. I don't have a problem with there being women or strong women in the movie. I have a problem with there being weak women that they're telling me are strong. The poster child for their feminist movement here is Ray. Ray's entire objective throughout the two movies so far is to find a man to tell her what to do. If that's what feminism is, I'm out. I'm hard out. If they were to create a new female character, what would your ideal be? I want a female Han Solo type. You know, I want someone who's, who's just a, a maverick, rebel, does her own thing, does what she wants when it suits her and not when it doesn't. Someone who's flawed, who makes mistakes, who can be selfish. Because that's the thing. It's just they seem so afraid to present a woman who's flawed. I'm flawed. You're flawed. We're all flawed. I want to see a flawed character. I don't see the new Star Wars films in the same way that Jesse does. But I'm glad I got to hear her perspective in detail. I do look for greater diversity in film and TV, particularly because I'm really bored of seeing the same four or five versions of female characters. And the latest Star Wars films seemed progressive from my point of view. I have wondered for a while, though, what it's like from another perspective, and not from the people who really just don't want to see non-white people on screen. I don't care. But from people who didn't enjoy the representations they were given, maybe because they're not relatable, or maybe because they aren't as imaginative as the viewer hoped. I still love Ray, though. And Paul Dameron is one of the characters I search for on fanfiction.net. And I turn that maturity level right up to the top, if you know what I mean. You do. You know what I mean. Where fans would divide is whether they want to influence the show or not. In some cases, they're happy to see the show as is, but they were happy to have the freedom to create their own stories and take those characters where they want to write them. And they're never going to be satisfied with the producer's versions of those kinds of stories. Others do or don't want access to the producers, right? They may want to hold the producers and stars at a distance because that gives them more freedom, less surveillance over their own creative output. You don't need the show to approve your fantasies. Your fantasies belong to you, in this case, belong to a community and not just an individual because they've taken textual form, right? They can be shared with other people. So yeah, I don't need the producer to tell me it's okay to write stories or that they like my stories or that my stories are the official one. All I need is their raw materials to tell a story that's interesting to me. So certain shows become vanished because they're fixer-uppers. Right? They're shows that are badly broken, but they have really rich resources there that allow us to have conversations. What drives the community is its own creative output.
my PhD mentor, Brenda Durbin, she talks about the fact that if we didn't have differences with one another, we'd have no reason to communicate with one another. Because communication is all about, you know, trying to understand and share to get to understand. So if there's no differences in a community, there'd be no communication in a community. It'd kind of be not a community, really, at that point. A couple of days ago, I saw a tweet by an actor called Ahmed Best featuring a picture of him and his son looking out over a horizon. It said, 20 years next year, I faced a media backlash that still affects my career today. This was the place I almost ended my life. It's still hard to talk about. I survived and now this little guy is my gift for survival. So I googled him to find out what media backlash this could have been. Ahmed Best played Jar Jar Binks in the Star Wars prequels, one of the most hated Star Wars characters of all time if you ask some original trilogy fans, and even some casual fans. The media backlash wasn't entirely a media backlash, though some of the press were pretty tight on him. It was a fan backlash. Being told he'd ruined people's childhood was too much for Best, and it was apparently enough to make him consider ending his life. If anyone listening to this knows what it's like to experience something like that, you'll have a far better idea than the rest of us. If I was to imagine, I would say it must be one of the loneliest and most shameful feelings in the world to be told you've ruined something huge by the people who claim to love it. In fandoms, the individual has a personal relationship with a particular film or TV series and they then interact and behave within a group of other people who love it on an individual level. So those two things are completely different. Leaving the cinema in a rage like Jesse and Billy did is one thing. Making a video where you critique a film is a normal response we're all entitled to. But taking to the internet to attack the cast members or director can turn individual dissatisfaction into a mob. Mobs are powerful and frankly they're they're most at home on the internet. Quick book recommendation. John Ronson's So You Think You've Been Publicly Shamed is a really good read if you're interested in how online shaming can ruin lives. I don't think fandoms are cults because, well, there's a few reasons. People involved are evidently quite happy to talk about it and they can talk about it very effusively and passionately. And also there's a lot of individualism involved. Cults encourage homogeny, not individuality. Fandoms are about what you draw and write, what you think, what you want to see in the next film, the character you think has ruined your childhood. People would go, words, have a drink. Just have a drink, Helen. People will group themselves together based on these factors, maybe attack the opposing group, maybe go about their business peacefully. But no two fans are the same. No two fans believe the same thing. No two fans like the same thing. And after talking to all these experts in fan studies, it sounds like conflict is the bedrock of it all. And that's why the current media doesn't seem to get it. That's why they like to divide the fans up simply. It's easier to see people as a group. There's been even more Star Wars fandom stuff in the press since making this episode. And every time I read a headline, I believe it even less. doesn't feel constructive or helpful to read it. Anyway, my Sherlock rewatch begins tomorrow. I'm actually quite looking forward to just being a fan of something again. Um, When you strip it right down to the basics, being a fan means loving something that someone else has created. It's about appreciation. I'm into that idea. 
especially if it involves Benedict Cumberbatch's luminous bone structure. That's a Cult is written and edited by me, Helen McCarthy. I've spelt my own name wrong in my notes. I've put McCarthy. It's McCarthy. I'm on Twitter at Helen L. McCarthy. The music is composed by Antti Luodi. You can find his information in the episode description. Thanks to all my interviewees. It's a long list this time. Adigny, Bina, Victoria, Anna Julia, Henry Jenkins, Billy Proctor, Carrie Lynn Reinhard, Bronwyn Thomas, and Jesse Milestone. That's nine people. It's a record. All their details are in the description, and there is more on the sources page, again, in the description. You can do your own reading and research. If you think I sound more cheerful than usual, suspiciously cheerful, it's because I just broke my beloved wireless headphones and I'm trying not to cry. The bit that goes around your head, the very integral bit that keeps it in place, snapped it, fucked it mate, gone, over. A couple of weeks ago I noticed that the podcast had 49 reviews on Apple Podcasts, most of them extremely kind, but I really wanted to get that 49 to a nice round 50, so I asked Twitter and three very kind people wrote some really positive five-star reviews within a few hours. Thank you to H Zizzle, great name, Cameron McNabb and Kay Worthington very kind of you all. If you like the podcast or you have thoughts on it or you a suggestion even, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It helps the podcast rise through the charts, which would be good. I'm certainly not expecting to reach the heights of Desert Island Discs, let's be real, but the more reviews and the more subscriptions, the more other people will be able to discover the podcast, which would be really, really great. You can write a full review or you can just tap five stars, lol, uh, if you want. I hate doing this like and subscribe pushy shit, but that's the currency of the internet, so I'm going with it. I started making this podcast officially about a year ago, and I'm really amazed by how many people have listened already and the response it's received. Um, I'm trying to do something important, I I think, with this podcast. Um, Hopefully encourage people to think about new things from new perspectives, explored some, explored, explore some weird internet shit, go really deep in some online subcultures. It's so fun doing that. I'm one of those people who gets stuck in Wikipedia looking up unsolved murders and I just think the internet is such a brilliant place for those kinds of wormholes and I hope this podcast sends you down those wormholes in the nicest possible way. (laughs) Please don't let it interfere with your job or qualifications. Quality matters to me a tremendous amount. That's why it takes quite a while to make every episode. I really appreciate you patiently waiting for them. But in the meantime, let me know what you like and what you'd like to see more of or less of by emailing me at thatsocult at gmail.com. And as always, I want to hear your internet cult suggestions too. I read and reply to every email. Thank you so much for listening and like and subscribe. Bye.